So, Pierre, I wanted to start this one off a little bit differently today. So I was listening to one of our friends' podcasts the other day. It was an episode of ContraZoom. Dakota, of course, if uh, for, for long-time listeners of our show, you may recognize ContraZoom as the show that Dakota and Rachel come from. They were on our Kicking It With Kendrick podcast a couple of times. But anyway, I was listening to his show a while back, and for his birthday this year, he did an episode where he brought on one of his friends, Bill Antonio, and Antonio, who's now going to call me out for mispronouncing his name. And they went through 10 genres of movie and listed off their favorite movies in each of those genres. I thought it was really interesting. They, they kept the genres pretty broad. So like, you know, what's your favorite crime movie from all like 100 plus years of movies? It was really interesting because they had to like crystallize things down to just one movie per genre for the most part. They they kind of did runner, runners up and stuff. But anyway, while I was listening to that, Dakota said something that really rubbed me the wrong way. And I thought I would play that for you now, Pierre. Let's hear it. Yeah. All right. Uh, so moving on to one that, I'm going to call a genre, and people are going to be very mad about this one. Mm. I understand animation is not a genre, it is a medium. But for the sake and purposes of this, I'm calling it a genre because we're specifically picking animated movies that we love. So that is the only reason why I'm calling it a genre at this time. I understand that it is a medium. He's making an interesting statement there, Jeff. Um, He is. What exactly is your problem here? (laughs) Just Just in case anyone's not entirely sure. So uh, as Dakota says in his own statement here, he's like, I understand. Animation is not a genre. It's a medium. All right, Dakota. So why are you considering it a genre for the purposes of your genre episode? If you're going to say in the same sentence that it's a medium. So I thought, you know, uh, up until that point, I was fully on board with this podcast. I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Comedy is a genre. Crime is a genre. Animation. Okay. And he's like, I fully understand. Animation is not a genre. It's a medium. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. You know what, Dakota? Yeah, you're right. Screw you, Dakota. (laughs) Animation is a medium. And you know what? Uh, I thought that just just for that, I wanted to prove to Dakota that animation is not a genre. It's a medium. And I thought that the best way to do that would be to do his episode again. Let's just correct his episode here real quick with our 10 best animated movies by genre. So we picked the same genres as they did in ContraZoom. And we came up with our favorite movie from each of those genres with the stipulation that, of course, these have to be animated movies because we're going to do 10 animated... We're going to do 10 movies by genre... Uh, using the medium of animation. Animation, of course, not being a genre. It being, it in, encompassing all the genres. Yeah, it's own, it deserves equal rights. It, it does. We're going to Which prove is why we're right going now. to talk about only animated movies today. Yeah. Also, I think it's really cool because uh, we've talked about plenty of animated movies on this show, but like, mm. not nearly enough. At least over the last couple of years, like, Animated movies, I feel like animated movies don't in general get the same kind of fanfare that like live action movies do in theaters. For one thing, there's more live action movies, so I guess like there's just more stuff there. But like when we've talked about animated movies on this show, it's been primarily Pixar and Disney and um 
occasionally something from another huge Western studio. And like, that's fine. But it's just that like on our show, we tend to talk about movies that, that just came out and that had like large releases and animated movies don't really get those large releases. And yet, like, I still watch a lot of animation every year. I don't know about you, but like, I want to talk about those. So I thought if we do an episode where we talk about up to 20 animated movies, we get to talk about those a little bit. Makes sense to me. Yeah. I, uh, well, I guess animation's in a weird spot too with post COVID. Uh, a lot of their movies are being released to streaming, straight to streaming, right? Yeah. So, well, an interesting time. I don't know if we talked about it in our Oscars episode, but I just remember one, one of the things that Amy Schumer said, or I don't think, I don't want to put all the blame on Amy Schumer. I think it was all three of the hosts. They said something along the lines of animation mm-hmm. is something that kids love and adults endure. And I was like, that's just wrong. You can't just say that. Yeah, well, I mean, you can just say that. Statement. It's just that like, I mean, I've long held that the Oscars don't give nearly enough attention to animation. And like straight up, I don't think that the film industry at large gives enough credit to animation, but like, yeah. When people in the industry in like very public positions say stuff like that, it's just it just really gets me the wrong way. Yeah. Well, I hope this podcast can solve that. I I hope so. That's what we're going to find out. Let's solve all the problems with the movie industry today, Pierre, by talking course, about why not? 10 movies from pretty broad genres and all of them are going to be animated. Last little bit of preamble. We took the same genres as Dakota did. We will talk about those as they come up. I'll leave it a little bit of a surprise for anybody who hasn't heard the ContraZoom episode. But uh, if you haven't heard the ContraZoom episode and you're listening to this, I would recommend going back and listening to it afterwards because it was a pretty good episode, despite Dakota's questionable opinions. And... I think we talked about it like we're going to try and keep it to mostly just one movie per genre just so that we don't end up talking for three hours. But um, I know for me, a lot of these genres were my pick was really close between two or three different movies. So I may have some runner ups, but I'm I'm not going to focus too much on the runner ups. And I'm, I'm sure it's probably the same for you for at least one or two of these genres. Yeah, I got a, I got a couple of runner-ups. Yeah, we'll just mostly mention them, but I get that. All right. We won't divulge. Well, shall we get started then? Sure. All right. Let's start with what is probably the broadest genre we could have had on this, because straight up, I think probably 80% of my picks broadly fall into the genre of comedy anyway, or yeah. at least could, but... Uh, for the purposes of this, we're considering comedy a genre, so we picked one single comedy movie. And uh, actually, surprisingly, comedy was not as tough for me as it could have been. Because so much fits into comedy, I definitely had the option to just pick something from one of the other genres that like, I was torn between and, and put one in one genre, one in comedy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what I did for this one because mine is roughly in the in the genre of musical. I picked the movie Ongaku Our Sound from 2020. Nice. Uh Pierre, have you seen Ongaku? No. 
it didn't get a very big release over here, but it is awesome. It was a movie that was made over, I think, seven years. It's an anime uh, about just like three high school, they, high school delinquents, except they're not really delinquents. They just kind of like, they don't have a lot of friends and they look like delinquents. Uh, they look like mm-hmm. punks, but like, and everyone thinks they are that, but that's, but they just like are lazy and don't do very much. And they decide to start a band and they're really, really bad at it. But like the local rock club at their school takes them under their wing and, um, that, and like tries to turn them in, like they, they see some potential in them. So they try to turn them into like a real rock band and like bring out everything about them. It's very much a slice of life movie, but it's so hilarious just in like, just for like tiny things a lot of the uh a lot of the humor in it is like extremely awkward pauses i think my favorite joke in it is the one of the characters gets like gets ambushed by another rival gang and the rival gang leader is like fight me or destroy your base and within not even a full second the guy has destroyed his base and is on his way running away (laughs) Like it, it, the guy, the rival gang leader doesn't even finish his sentence. It's hilarious, and like it's just constant moments like that. It's very much. Uh, it's a movie that doesn't have a lot of direction. It's just like, mm. it's just a bunch of stuff happens, and most of that stuff is like two second jokes, and it has a hilarious hit rate. Also, this is a movie that's like it's weird because it's uh, it's an anime, but it's entirely rotoscoped which makes it feel just super weird to look mm. at. It's uh, everyone moves way more fluidly than they should, but also character design is much closer to something like One Punch Man than something like another rotoscope movie I'm going to talk about here pretty soon. But it doesn't look quite like anything else that's rotoscoped, and it doesn't look quite like an anime. Yeah. Which is very strange. Oh, that's cool. I need to look that up. I like that sounds interesting. It's, it's super short, too. I think it's only 70 minutes. And it's really cool, especially if you're into... Um, well, yeah, if you're into old prog rock, especially, it's really cool because a lot of the art from it takes direct inspiration from old album covers. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's one nightmare sequence. Or not really a nightmare sequence. It's a sequence where one of the, uh, one of the characters hears the main character's song for the first time. And he, like has an entire dream sequence that's just references to old album covers, including he rides around on tubular bells. There's a big armadillo tank that comes out of nowhere. <laughs> um, it's, it's so cool, especially if you, if you like music from the 60s and 70s, all the jokes hit even harder. Oh, nice. The way you were describing it, it really sounds like a movie that, like a live action movie would traditionally improvise something like that where you said there were just like a lot of jokes that didn't necessarily add to the plot right but they were just funny Mm -hmm. it sounds like yeah but it's interesting because you can't really improv an animated movie i mean you can i guess theoretically it would just take a really long time i do actually wonder though because some of the notable things about this movie is are it's rotoscoped which means that they were working from which probably means that they were animating over footage that it that they'd actually shot mm-hmm. and it took a long time. I think this movie took seven years to make. So like oh, wow. 
it's actually okay. possible that it was entirely or at least mostly improvised and mm. then animated. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Ongaku? That's what it's called, which I believe means music. Oh, nice. So the, the English version is Ongaku, Our Sound. Yeah. Highly recommend. Wait. But it was released by G-Kids, which I don't remember if G-Kids is going to be on this list at all anymore. But G-Kids has a hilariously bad strategy for releasing movies, in my opinion. So mm. if Ongaku is something you haven't heard of, I'm not surprised. G-Kids didn't yeah. do a lot to uh, make it well-known. Interesting. And that is your favorite? I put that for comedy. And okay. honestly, like it's one of the funniest animated movies I've seen that I can remember. So I think that like... Mm. I think it fits. I think that's mm -hmm. one where I wouldn't have picked something else. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, for my pick, I picked the Spongebob Squarepants movie. Sonar 4-0. Is that sound still out there? What's going on, Jonesy? I can hear. What the hell is it? Splashes. 3,000 yards closing awfully fast. Mother of God. Just love playing submarine, Gary. Prepare to dive. The SpongeBob SquarePants movie uh, from 2000. I think it's 2004. I mean, I'm, I'm just a huge SpongeBob fan in general. Um, at least the first like three seasons were really cool for me, um, and then I feel like the movie was. Because the direct, the creator of the show left after the movie, um, so I think he envisioned the movie as like the finale of the show, basically. Um, mm -hmm. So that's how I kind of see it too. And uh, yeah, it's just I think it's really, really, it's really funny, but it's got a lot of heart or a surprising amount of heart for you know uh, a SpongeBob movie. It's got some great stars in it too. So like that had Scarlett Johansson when she was like I think still on the come up. It had David Hasselhoff and like this really weird scene that I'll never forget uh, where you actually like see him in person. Yeah, they, they, they had some really interesting choices there. But yeah, I think it just fires on all cylinders. Um, but it's primary. I'd say it's primarily a comedy because I think that's that's what it's trying to do the whole time. So, yeah, I, that this might be more of a nostalgia pick because it's very dear to me in my heart. But this movie's very good. I was going to say it's way better than the other two movies that came out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I remember really liking it when it came out. And I know I've seen it more than just like right in theaters. I know I've seen it at least twice, but I haven't seen it in a while. But I remember like it had a lot of like really random humor, but it didn't seem forced. Like the David Hasselhoff thing kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere, but it actually like... It's not just a blind reference. Like, it makes sense uh, in, in the context. 
it actually helps the movie along and it's really funny too. Uh, I think that was like, David Hasselhoff was definitely known at the time, but I think that he hadn't really been in anything for a while. Like, I think that was, I don't know that there's ever been a David Hasselhoff comeback, but like that was the first time that he'd really done much in, in years. Yeah. Well, he was known for Baywatch, right? I think um, so. Thing. Yeah. I, I think it was a, it's a cute cameo. I think it, it really fits the, like, like I know like SpongeBob now, like in, in the past two years, they've had a lot of celebrity cameos to voice someone or something, but David Hasselhoff felt like the, the perfect amount of corniness slash like, like he wasn't really in style at the time. And I feel like SpongeBob getting someone that's like cool at the time is like not what SpongeBob would do. Cause it's like mm-hmm. supposed to be kind of lame, but in like a fun way, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it made a lot of sense. And the way they used him was like genius. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they filmed those scenes where he's like moving his like his it's, his chest becomes like a missile launcher or something that you want to know how they filmed those scenes? Them. What? How? Tell me. That's animatronics. They used animatronic David Hasselhoff for that. Oh, I see, yeah. So like real David Hasselhoff was in the movie, but for the yeah. scenes where like his chest comes apart and like becomes a missile launcher, <laughs> that's animatronic David Hasselhoff. Yeah, that makes sense. I've seen the I've seen the picture of the animatronics. It floats around on Reddit every now and then. Oh nice. That's cool. But yeah, that was a great pick. Yeah. yeah. I need to rewatch yeah. that. Yeah, I do too. But yeah. And it also I feel like it. At least, like, it feels like recently animated movies from, like, TV shows, they don't feel like, like, or maybe that's just the Spongebob ones, but they don't feel, like, epic enough. Like, in this one, you definitely felt, like, the animation was much better, like, there was a lot more shading, it just felt richer and more mature, and uh, same thing with, like, the plot and the dialogue, too, like, it was just, it was all, it felt like a movie, if that makes sense. It wasn't just, like, an extended TV episode or whatever. yeah. When big animated shows are adapted for TV, I feel like there's this weird, well, there's this expectation that like, oh, this can't just be a TV episode. And like, that's not an unreasonable expectation to have. But I remember like, like, I remember way back around that same time, SpongeBob had a movie and then there was the Simpsons movie. Um, Those are the two big ones. And like, it felt like they needed a reason that this was a movie and not an episode. And like, Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, for sure, they definitely did because they, they have a huge budget for a movie. But then I think of this year, uh, the Bob's Burgers movie came out and I saw that. And like, I don't think that felt much different than just a long episode. But I also don't mm. know if that was a bad thing, because like, mm. uh, does a TV show becoming a movie actually need to make a big jump or does it just need to be? you know, what you come to the show for. And I, I don't know, maybe yeah, I'm sort of true. rambling now. It's no, that makes sense. That's interesting. It's kind of a hard thing to think down. about. Yeah. Um, basically what I'm trying to say is that I don't think any like TV show jumping to a movie has felt quite as epic in scale as both SpongeBob and then the Simpsons movie around that time. Yeah. Like, it was, it was an interesting time for that. I don't know. Like why. if someone told if someone told me right now that there's going to be a Futurama movie next year, I would be like, okay, interesting. 
But like at the time, if they if someone said there's gonna be a Simpsons movie, you were like, bro, I gotta see that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, what are we? What's our next right. category? So I think Dakota might have said it on his episode too. But every other category after this, functionally drama. So drama is not a full genre that we picked because uh, it's it's too broad. Everything is either a drama or it's a comedy. So this is where things start to get a little more difficult. Um, uh, the first of these dramatic categories that we're going for is crime. So favorite animated crime movie. This is actually one where, once again, I had the option between two, and I was very lucky that uh, my runner-up pick in this category fits under a different category as well, so I could pick my my first pick in this. Well, yeah, I could pick my first pick in this one. And this is going to be my second rotoscoped movie, actually, but I think it's the last one on this list. Uh, a Scanner Darkly by Richard Linklater. It may just be my imagination. Whatever it is that's watching, it's not human. Gentlemen, you are about to witness for approximately 61 cents the perfect homemade silencer. That sure is some silencer. Um, oh, wow. I didn't know he made an animated movie. He's made a honest. couple now. I think he's made three, and A Scanner Darkly was his second one. Uh, Richard Linklater... When I think of his movies, he's very interested in experimental filming techniques, sometimes to a fault. Like, uh, when I think back, Boyhood was very good, but Boyhood was also, it wasn't a must-see because it was an interesting movie. It was a must-see because it was filmed over 13 years. So you're like, well, this is really interesting. What did he do for this? How Did it actually turn into something good? I think it did. But... Like, Richard Linklater, every time I hear he's making a movie, part of the draw of the film is the aspect, is some aspect of the filmmaking. Uh, like, he's making a musical. Mm. I don't think he's made a musical yet, but, like, the musical he's making is called Merrily We Roll Along, and it takes place over 20 years. And guess how long he's taken to film it? 20 years? Yep. That's so, crazy. <laughs> so when Richard Linklater is doing animated movies, he really leans into like experimental styles of animation, which means he's been a very big proponent of rotoscoping, which rotoscoping isn't necessarily experimental by definition, but it's not used that often. And it's like not a type of animation that um, a lot of people are like intimately familiar with. And it really fits like his style a lot better because what, because uh, a scanner darkly it's based on a novel by Philip K. Dick, uh, the same guy who wrote Blade Runner Total Recall. Oh, wow. I think he, he also wrote The Man in the High Castle. Um, really, really great sci-fi writer. And A Scanner Darkly is a movie mm -hmm. kind of... I think it's broadly about addiction. In mm. the movie, there's one character who is an FBI agent. And the type of agent that he is, no one is allowed to know who he is, not even his employers. Like, and so in order to do that, he wears this suit that completely obscures his identity. And uh, what he's trying to do is he's trying to, I think he's trying to do a drug bust. But as the, uh, as the movie goes on, it becomes less and less clear who he's actually trying to bust. And it might actually just be himself or <laughs> he might not even be or like, 
by the end of the movie, they've given you enough reason to doubt that he's even the person we keep seeing. Like it could actually just be his buddy that's in, that's wearing his suit the whole time instead. It's really trippy. Uh, it's like a fever dream. And um, it stars Keanu Reeves, Robert Downey Jr. right before Iron Man came out and oh, wow. Woody Harrelson as a trio of stoners. So this is like almost a stoner comedy, the way that it's filmed, but it's like a stoner comedy horror. It's it's like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. If Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was exactly the same movie, but a tiny, tiny bit less goofy and animated. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you've already pulled this up, but even just the art direction for A Scanner Darkly looks so weird. And I mean, as you're watching it, it's clearly animated, but also clearly everything in this was filmed. Like, mm -hmm. it's actual Robert Downey Jr. It's actual Keanu Reeves, just like basically drawn over with a filter. And like, it's it's full animation. And the rotoscoping gives them the ability to like change the backgrounds in interesting ways. The suit that obscures the guy's identity would not be possible without rotoscoping, or yeah. not without rotoscoping, without animation. Um, it's just a really cool use of the medium. And just as a crime movie, it's a really cool one because it is it's a stoner crime movie but not in the overt comedy way of as something like pineapple express almost like mm. it's much closer in tone to something like fear and loathing in las vegas just a really okay. really wild movie yeah that's that's another rotoscope movie interesting what's kind of interesting is Richard Linklater, so this is Richard Linklater's second rotoscope movie. He actually released a third one this year, but then, like, in his third rotoscoping movie, the uh, in Apollo 10 and a half, mm. they did almost no filming beforehand. So it's not oh. even really rotoscoped. So he's like experimenting with the concept of rotoscoping itself, which mm. is way, way higher effort then he needs to go but it's really interesting like he's got such a weird passion for filmmaking in a way that most other filmmakers don't not like more or less than other filmmakers just in a weird way it's really cool i like yeah. richard link later a lot yeah no i i mean i just learned he did school of rock i think it was kind of cool i need to watch a lot of his other movies i've only seen boyhood and i guess school of rock uh but yeah no he's definitely acclaimed for a reason Mm -hmm. um and yeah it looks like it looks like an interesting movie at least art art wise you were right just looking at the poster yeah uh for me my crime movie is batman the mask of i think it's phantasm i don't know how to pronounce it hey. properly batman mask of the phantasm the animated movie coming for a christmas you'll never forget I I I love that movie so much. It's um, it's probably like potentially one of like the best Batman movie too, in my opinion. I think it does the best job of looking at Bruce Wayne as a character, um, and getting into his psyche. Like I I feel like the Dark Knight series, as good as it is, I feel like they don't. Bruce Wayne is very under, relatively underdeveloped as a person because um, they, I think they focus more on like the epic scale of in that saga. Batman Begins did a decent, pretty good job, uh, but this felt like the most like Batman-based movie 
And I think like Kevin Conroy really knocked it out of the park and giving us like such a sentimental look at Bruce Wayne contrasted with like the hardness of Batman. I think it's written amazingly well. I mean, I, I think like finding out who the, the phantasm is. I can't remember the first time I watched it, but wait, have you seen this movie? I have. I haven't seen okay, it in a okay. while, but I remember yeah. that when they reveal who the phantasm is, I feel like I probably could have seen it coming, but it was a legit shock to me mm. the first time I saw it. Yeah, well, I think they do set it up really well with, I think, uh, you're, you're kind of hoping it's not the person it is, so you're like, mm. you're, you're like fighting against it, but then it turns out to be. Uh, but yeah, and then also like, I think this, it, the movie, I loved how they used the Joker and that he wasn't really like, a main part of like he wasn't the main villain right he was there mm -hmm. but i he did really feel much more like like he was used very minimally but he still felt like the force of nature that he is in like so many other interpretations of him um even though like he only has like 15 minutes of screen time i want to say like he, he mostly mm -hmm. just comes in the third act so i like i loved him all of his scenes are gold in that movie and mark hamill did that was probably his like best performance. And I think it's probably my favorite Joker too, mm -hmm. um, out of all of them. So yeah, no, I, I love that movie. It's got, it's got a lot of heart. The action's actually really good. The plot's really interesting and mysterious. It's very, very mature for um, a movie that was, I think Mark, like, it was definitely marketed towards kids because this was kind of a spinoff of the, the Batman, the animated series uh, TV mm -hmm. show. But yeah, it's, I think it it's, may it's have released as PG thirteen though. Oh yeah, there was like there was like blood in this, like which was also surprising. Um, that's the thing too. Like I, it it felt like they took all the concepts that worked in the animated show, and I've seen the animated show at least like the first season, and I couldn't really get into it because I felt a lot more childish than I was hoping for. But this really brought it up because like you know Joker is actually like killing people in this, and he's like a real threat um mm -hmm. and everything so yeah it, it's a really good movie and i it i think that's the biggest example of a movie being overlooked because it's you know animated um it, it's it definitely should be seen as like one of the best if not the best interpretation of batman on screen at well, least so yeah for what it's worth rolling stone magazine agrees with you they put it at number 19 on their best on their greatest superhero movies of all time nice which is pretty high, high. and like that's pretty. High. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, but I do remember that like I was not expecting it to be as amazing as it was, and so I definitely recommend it. I'm actually gonna make good on that recommendation myself. I'm gonna watch that here probably this weekend or something. It, it's I think I have access nice. to it on Crave maybe. So if you're in Canada, it's on Crave right now. If you're in uh, if you're in the U.S. It's probably on HBO Max, but no one really seems to know what's going on with HBO Max right now, so hard to say. <laughs> yeah, it's in a weird spot. So right. moving uh, on, uh, another we've got a big one. This is huge because for several years, or the term animated movie was almost synonymous with animated musical. And so we're going to talk about musicals, and I'm not going to guess too hard what yours, what yours is. But I have a feeling it's probably from the same era of uh, as as mine. Uh, I'm gonna start with mine. 
my favorite animated musical. I, I did have to think about this a little bit, but like as, as soon as this one came to mind, I was like, oh yeah, there's there's no question. It's the Hunchback of Notre Dame. One day, and then I swear I'll be content with my share. Won't resent, won't despair, hold and bend. I won't care, I'll have spent one day out From 1996, this was right during the Disney Renaissance. It was, I think, two or three movies, maybe, after The Lion King. Mm -hmm. And I feel like The Hunchback of Notre Dame gets overlooked a little bit. Not that much, because I know it's a lot of people's favorite, and like a lot of people certainly know it exists, but it never reached the heights of something like The Lion King or Beauty and the Beast. And actually... I think at the Oscars, that was that this was like a decade where animated Disney movies were constantly getting recognized at the Oscars. I think Beauty and the Beast, I think there was one year Beauty and the Beast had every single nomination for Best Original Song except one. And uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame got, I think it got completely snubbed at the Oscars. It might have gotten like a sound nomination, not even a song or not even a song nomination, just a sound nomination and it actually got a nomination at the razzies for worst original screenplay which (laughs) is wrong the razzies are wrong the hunchback of notre dame is really good i think one thing that distinguishes it a lot and this might be why i like it so much from all those disney renaissance movies disney renaissance movies go dark they do like the the parts of the lion king i remember best aren't the darkest parts but the Lion King isn't like a exclusively happy-go-lucky movie. Like there's a lot of there's a lot going on in that. It's pretty heavy in points. And that's the same thing with Pocahontas. Beauty and the Beast Beast less so, but not entirely not at all. Like it definitely gets dark as well. I think The Hunchback of Notre Dame is maybe the most obviously, like the most overtly dark of those movies. Because mm-hmm. like it literally opens with uh, child abandonment and kidnapping and then moves on to uh, and then moves on to like some very light ethnic cleansing so it's there's a lot going on in that movie and like it's not subtle Victor Jeez. Victor Hugo the guy who wrote the original book he's he's certainly known for putting a lot into his books and for his books being very dense with ways you can interpret them uh but he's not exactly known for being subtle either. He had his his books are pretty damn dark. And the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Disney movie, is uh, a, a like a walk in the park in comparison to what it could have been. Although I think that's uh, from what I know of the book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I think most of the changes in the uh, animated in the Disney animated movie were were for the best. But also. Um, yeah, you've seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame, right? 
I actually haven't. Or if oh, I did, wow. it's been like when I was like five or something. It's been a long time. Fair enough. Yeah, I think yeah. I'm sure I saw this as a like child, but I don't think I actually like consciously watched this until maybe four years ago. And then I've seen it three times in the last year. Mm, this, wow. It's it really it's just so different from a lot of other Disney movies at the time. It's got the same anime. It's got the same animation style. Um, it's, you know, also a musical. But like. Like I said, it's more obviously dark. It also, like, doesn't include a traditional romance or even, like, that much of a non-traditional romance. Like, affection is in the movie, but it's not there, you know, like, there's no one who gets the girl, really. There's no girl to get, really. Um, I mean, like, there is a female, there is a female main character, but she's she's much more capable than I guess you would expect. Although I don't want to say she's more capable than other Disney heroines because Disney heroines are actually pretty good at being very capable. Um, mm -hmm. Like that's, that's not like Disney doesn't actually do a lot of damsels in distress. Usually at least as I have in my mind, I'm sure I'm wrong about that, but still anyway. No, you're right. I think they're pretty good at that. Yeah. It's, it's a really good movie. And once again, I, as I'm going to say with all of these, I absolutely recommend it. I think this one is, no, I was going to say, I think it's on Netflix, but it's on Disney plus obviously, because you can't watch Disney things on Netflix. And I think it has my favorite, uh, like my favorite songs in a Disney musical as well. The big one that everyone knows from this, I think is called hellfire, which is awesome. It's just got such, it's such a good villain song. And the villain in this is such a hateable villain. Man. <laughs> it's it's a really good movie. Like fire, hellfire, this fire in my skin, this burning desire is turning me to My favorite musical. I'm going to go, I, I think, like, I'm going to give an order of, like, I think the, the 90s era is amazing. I think, like, picking one of those movies would be, I, like, I'd probably say Aladdin, for like, my favorite of that era. But I feel like, like, the one I want to talk about, I think, is probably Frozen. Because I, I think it's the most interesting in terms of, it. it's, like, the only modern musical i think that was that has been done really well like by disney right i mean there hasn't been many but um i think i think uh frozen's probably one of the best animated movies just because like i, I think every song is extremely catchy i that, that's the most important thing i love every single song i feel like with aladdin it's like a little not fair because robin williams just carries all of his songs like really really hard Mm -hmm. um i mean the songs are amazing but like it's just it's robin williams right but yeah like I, I think frozen it's it's really all the songs are really really well done and i think they're all really effective in conveying all the all the emotions and the kind of the character progression of each character like i still remember because i think the biggest reason why frozen is so memorable to me is that um when i watched it the first time it was like a year after it came out and i was like everyone's time up the song let it go like how could it could it actually be like it's probably just like 
some like trashy like catchy song that i won't care about and i was still like i was blown away by it And so yeah, song-wise, it's, it's just it it hits on every every single level. Um, I think animation-wise, it looks beautiful. I think I think it was just really tough for Disney because like for like you, it, this was a really tough movie to follow up on. I think it it hit on all cylinders like really well. Even Olaf, I think Olaf. A lot of people complain about Olaf. I think I do too. I think he was fine in that movie until they took him and he became his own thing. But yeah, it's. It's I I think it's just really memorable for me because it's like the first movie that I feel like or animated movie, musical that I feel like I watched and I wasn't expecting that much and it really blew me away if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I wouldn't say it's necessarily like better than that the like the nineties the nineties era, um, but like all of those movies were hitting at the time, right? Right. And it's, I think it's very easy to, I mean, they're all unique in their own ways, but it's like, you, I feel like you can attribute that to just the general era of Disney was, they were in a great spot back then. Uh, Frozen feels like a very big anomaly that they, I don't think they're going to be able to replicate. And I felt like a really great throwback to that 90s era while also modernizing it in a lot of ways. So yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that we really have to say especially in that 90s era. And like, this this is going to relate to Frozen in just a minute. But in that 90s era, a lot of the music was done by Alan Menken. Not exclusively, but he did Beauty and the Beast. He did Aladdin. He did Pocahontas. He did The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He did Hercules, which is like, that's not every movie Disney released in the 90s, but it's a good half. And um, yeah. Alan Menken... Uh, one of the few people, I think, to have what's called a regot, which is the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, and Razzie. I think he's the <laughs> only person to have all five. But anyway, I don't think his influence on that 90s Disney era can be understated. Because a lot, like all those movies hit, and half of them were Alan Menken. And most of the songs from that time that are like the most memorable songs are either Alan Menken songs or Elton John or Phil Collins, because the other ones would be Tarzan and the Lion King that he didn't do. And his last musical for Disney for a while. Well, that's iffy to say, but anyway, after 1997, he did home on the range, but he didn't, he did home on the range and he did enchanted and tangled, but he actually didn't do, but Disney in in general kind of pivoted away from traditional animation and from traditionally animated musicals. They just sort of went in a different direction and to a lesser degree with tangled, but mo but much more so with frozen. That's where they really, that's, that was like their first Disney Renaissance style musical in a while. I think, Mm. I don't think Tangled even quite fits that because Tangled, it is a musical, but like, I don't even remember it that much as a musical. It was much more, the musical aspects of it weren't the focus, where in Frozen they were a lot more so. And I think that you bringing up Frozen, 
yeah, that's not technically part of that 90s era Disney, but it's a lot closer to it than a lot of the other stuff Disney has done since. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, Disney's tried to replicate the 90s era so much. Like like you said, Tangled, Frozen. Moana was, like, an attempt, but I, I really don't like Moana as much, that much. There's, there's something about them, like, they, they feel off. I think it's the songs, personally. Like I, like, I think Moana had great songs, but also, like, I feel like a lot of them weren't really... They weren't hit because I don't. There's something about the way, the reasons they were using the songs from that mm-hmm. era. Like each song was not for the sake of having a song, which I feel like a lot of musicals makes make the mistake of doing. Um, obviously it's an artistic thing sometimes, but like every single song is just so effective in telling like a much larger story, but you're packaging it in like a three minute song, making it fun to listen to and catchy. And it's like, it's just genius because you can get through like, like, for example, the in Frozen, like, do you want to build a snowman is basically telling the entire backstory of the tale of like why Elsa is isolated from her family and her family dies and she's, she's messed up and depressed because she thinks it's her fault. Um, And that like the separation between Anna and Elsa at the start, right? Like the Mm -hmm. alienation that's all done in like a, a three minute sequence while like singing a catchy song that gets stuck in people's heads like it's a very good way of doing it and i feel like yeah tangled moana i think there's another one more recently oh the encanto like encanto didn't do that either in my opinion Mm -hmm. yeah so again i don't necessarily think it's like the best movie but i think it's the most animated like musical even though i know that's like the category but i feel like it's the most unique in that it's the only one done modernly and done really, really well. Mm-hmm. I think the connecting thread for both of those is, yeah, they're just good musicals too. Like The Hunchback of Notre Dame does exactly what you're saying as well. And it's almost, it's almost sung through. I think Pocahontas mm-hmm. might actually be sung through. Like that might be their only sung through musical. I'm not entirely certain on that. But like- Wait, What do you mean by sung through? Sorry. As in, uh, I think, I think Pocahontas, no, Pocahontas isn't quite- that but sung through means there's no spoken dialogue like it's all set to music and pocahontas oh, is very <clears throat> close to that mm, hunchback okay. of notre dame isn't but like hunchback of notre dame and frozen both really succeed as musicals because they do what like the songs in those are awesome but they do what musical songs are supposed to do which is tell the entire like they really advance the story like they're doing most of the heavy lifting of the story if you replaced all of the songs in the hunchback of notre dame or in frozen with dialogue instead you would have to rewrite you would have to majorly rewrite those movies like you would you would have to do a lot of work that the songs are doing in dialogue form for Mm -hmm. moana less so i think there's some songs that really really work in moana uh to like get that across i like to get to get across what's going on but there are more songs in moana than in frozen or in hunchback that you could just cut out and you actually wouldn't change the story yeah it'd be mostly fine because mm-hmm. there's not that much story to tell either <laughs> that sounds me and i the moana story is like there's not really much going on there to be honest but yeah anyways yeah Elsa? 
Do you want to build a snowman? Come on, let's go and play. I never see you anymore. Come out the door. It's like you've gone away. For our next category, this one's really hard because this is actually... Uh, unfortunately, animation is not a medium that is used very often for documentary. It is used occasionally, and when it's used, it's used very well, in my opinion. Almost, like, the number of animated documentaries I've seen that have been good is proportionately very high, because I can't actually think of a bad animated documentary I've seen, but I can also count on one hand the number of animated documentaries I've seen. So... Uh, there is that. Um, but for documentary, uh, I picked for my, no, for my pick, I picked Flea and Pierre, if you haven't seen Flea, you should, it was nominated. It's, it's the first movie to be nominated at the Oscars for best animated feature, best documentary feature and best international feature. Like Mm. the first, the first ever movie to do all three of those. It won none of them, unfortunately, but I think that it, definitely should have been a contender in all three. I think it would have been my, of, of the things that were nominated for animated feature, I think it was the most deserving, at least there. Altså, hvad er det tidligste, du sådan kan huske? Vi er i Afghanistan, i Kabul. Min morgen er mit hår, så ingen andre kan gøre det ligesom hende. The director interviewed his friend that he's known since high school, who was a refugee from Afghanistan, who came to Denmark in, I want to say the late 90s. No, I think he came to Denmark in the 80s. And um, he just like never talked about his past. But the uh, but him and the director were uh, really good friends. And the director eventually got him to tell his story about him fleeing Afghanistan. And so they interviewed him over, he interviewed him over however long, I think it was actually over a couple of months, maybe even a year. The way it looks in the movie, it could have even been two days. But like, he just kind of interviewed him at his own pace, saved all of the stuff from the interviews, and then they animated the story that he was narrating. And it's, it's really fascinating, first off, just because because it's an interesting story he's it's you know talking about a, a guy and why he left why he was basically forced to leave his country and go somewhere he didn't he didn't even intend to go actually he just like had to leave but then in addition to that the way they the way it all plays out and the way that it's animated is really really interesting basically it's it's really interesting and it came out last year around the time that there was more turmoil in Afghanistan. So it's also like really interesting to watch this movie and see I don't want to say how little has changed in 30 years, but like how similar the global situation is today to it to how it was back then. And like I don't know, just in general, I am I am very lucky that I come from a very privileged background and have never been forced to leave the place that I live. But um, that's not a story that I see very often. And it's really it's really cool to have it to like see that perspective. And it puts a lot of things into it, it puts a lot of things into perspective. 
like at one point he ends up having to go with human traffickers because it's that or be deported back to Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, he doesn't want to go with human traffickers, but like, and, and everyone knows that the human traffickers aren't even a little bit trustworthy, but like what choice does he have? Yeah. Human trafficker is usually not really high on my scale of people to trust. Yeah. Uh, I think there's there's one scene in the movie that's like that's really heartbreaking. They're in this boat piloted by human traffickers and the boat is starting to go under. So they have like so everyone gets up and they're all helping to like bail the water out of the boat so that the boat can like stay afloat as long as they can because they have they have no other options. They have no papers. They don't have a radio on the boat. They can't call for help. Like they could drown at any moment and no one would ever know. And then like this giant cruise ship comes by and everyone on the boat is happy because they're being saved and you see the way it's animated and the people on the cruise ship don't care. They're all standing outside, (laughs) just taking pictures of the like little boat. And eventually when they finally like hear something from the bullhorn on the cruise ship, they're like, stay where you are. We'll have the coast guard come to bring you back soon. It's like, Oh, so they're not going to help. They're just going to send them back. Great. Jeez. It's it's so rough. It's depressing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, once again, I really recommend this one. It's a kind of story that I... That thousands of people live, but if you don't live this story, you rarely ever hear about it. And I think that I'm really glad that there is... That there are movies that tell those stories. Because... I mean, I'm sure that most of the people who live those stories, or at least a large number of them, don't have the means to tell those stories at a broad scale. Yeah, especially like, you know, animated. I think it's a it's very tough to capture that in like that type of in environment, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think like, like what's kind of cool about this one in that respect is because the actual footage they shot, if they shot any footage, which I'm sure they did, was like, they shot him laying on a couch and telling his story. And mm-hmm. that would be interesting as an interview if you wanted to watch that interview. But through animation, they were able to like animate his entire backstory and make it feel more real, despite all of it being, you know, well, animation. Yeah. Um, and through the medium of animation, they're also able to use that not just to not just to animate this story that like they can't film because it doesn't exist or like it, it's not something they can just go back and film. But like they're also able to use that to really evoke a very specific mood. Like there's certain parts of the movie that are not fully drawn out, which makes it which gives it a really kinetic feeling. Um, so you really feel like in where they want you to, the filmmakers are really good about like making you feel a mean who's the main character, a means panic or, uh, when he actually does get a moment to rest, making that feel really rewarding or, you know, feeling it's really good at manipulating those feelings in a way that doesn't seem obvious, like a way that doesn't make it seem like they're playing with your feelings. They're just using the medium of film in a really good way. 
Yeah. So for this one, we're going to move on to what I'm going to call a genre, but people are going to be very (laughs) mad about this one. Uh, I understand. I understand. Live action is not a genre. It's a medium. But I'm calling it a genre because we're specifically picking live action movies that we love. So that is the only reason I'm calling it a genre at this time. I understand that live action is a medium. Uh, Pierre, why don't you go first? Um, okay. Well, I don't know if this counts, but I love uh, the most, the partly live action movie, um, Space Jam. Everybody get up, it's time to slam now. We got the real jam going down. Welcome to the Space Jam. Here's your chance, do your dance at the Space Jam. All right. Um, Hell yes. I've been wanting to talk about Space Jam on this show for so long. Yeah, Space Jam 1, to be clear. Yeah. Uh, Not Space Jam. We talked about Space Jam 2, I think, at an earlier date. And that that was a bad episode. I mean, it was a bad movie, but... <clears throat> Anyways, yeah, I uh, Space Jam 1 is great. It's technically live action, I'd say, because I'd say about like half the movie actually happens like in, in the real world. Uh, maybe, maybe like a third of the movie. But yeah, it's, I think it's just really crazy that like I remember I've watched it. I watched it so many times when I was younger, but I never actually realized Michael Jordan actually retired from basketball to play baseball. Mm-hmm. And then he went back. But I think it's also like so crazy how they... They took that. They took that story of like like some really crazy shit that happened in sports, and then somehow gave it like a backstory of like he quit because or he quit and then he came back because he played basketball with the Looney Tunes to prevent them from being sold to Mars or the Moon or something and being like theme park attractions. I don't know. It's it's such a crazy plot. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's great. Like Michael Jordan, I mean, especially after seeing LeBron act, I think Michael Jordan did an amazing job (laughs) for, for someone, for someone that's, you know, not, he hasn't been trained at all in acting. Um, and I noticed especially like sports athletes are rarely good on screen. Um, Michael Jordan did a great job, especially considering he was acting a bunch off a bunch of animated characters. Uh, this had Wayne Knight in it. And I think Wayne Knight is amazing. Uh, every time he's, I've seen him in a movie. I mean, I've only seen him in Jurassic Park and this, but he basically plays he basically plays the same guy as the as Newman and Seinfeld. Um, but yeah, I think it works out every time. I think he's really good at that. Bill Murray's in this movie for some reason, and I think it's just the weirdest, probably the most memorable and weird cameo or sort of cameo I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, and it's also just classic Looney Tunes. Like I think, I think the Looney Tunes are way funnier and they have so much more potential than they are currently getting like mm-hmm. in media right now. And I, th- I do really think it's like a timeless, like they're timeless characters. And this was definitely, I think a recapturing of that magic that they had in like the sixties or whatever they were like, like the, the, the cartoon was mostly coming out. And I feel like this, that was, I almost feel like that was like the last major outing of, of the Looney Tunes because they had a couple sequels, or not sequels, but like they had a couple movies that kind of chased that magic, um, like Looney Tunes back in action with Brendan Fraser and mm-hmm. the I can't remember what the, the the actress's name is. Oh, and also it, that had Robin Williams. That movie I think is, is really great too, but it it bombed really hard, and I think 
space the the magic of space jam is not going to be recaptured like ever mm -hmm. and so it's a very unique movie and uh that's why it's my favorite live action movie i guess with animated characters in it i'm really really glad you picked space jam because uh that space jam and the movie i'm about to talk about i am firmly of the belief that we will never get movies like those ever again we will never get a movie that does what Space Jam did mm -hmm. in the same way. Because yeah. Space Jam Space Jam is such an insane idea, for one thing. Because it's Looney Tunes and Michael Jordan. But not only that, Space Jam is basically it's so close to being a uh to being a biopic of Michael Jordan. Like Space <laughs> yeah. Jam, I I only know a little bit of the of the state of basketball in the late 80s and early 90s but space jam is like it's all of that in a nutshell it literally is talking about the state of of the nba at the time with uh while also introducing anyone who's not familiar who's not familiar with michael jordan which at the time there was no one that was not familiar with michael jordan but but now like most of what I know about Michael Jordan is from Space Jam. And it's because Space Jam goes out of its way to be like, this is who Michael Jordan was as a child. This is him now. He just quit He just quit basketball to play baseball. But afterwards, he's found his way again. And it's like, it's actually such an interesting portrait of like one of the biggest stars of the time and a really weird time in that guy's in that star's life that was currently going on. Like this was all extremely current events that just like they slammed Looney Tunes into for some reason, but yeah. it worked. Like, I don't know, man, if you told me that the act, like I, I think that space jam when it came out in 1996, I think that like as much as space jam is, a fictional movie that features Bugs Bunny. Like, I think Space Jam is like a really touchingly true to life movie about Michael Jordan and the people around him. Because I remember another big thing in this movie, it has Charles Barkley and uh, a bunch of other NBA stars yeah. at the time that lose their ability to play basketball, which I'm almost certain is partially a commentary on what happened to the NBA immediately following, like either what happened to the NBA or what people expected to happen to the NBA immediately after Michael Jordan left. It's like, if Michael Jordan's not here, well, Michael Jordan's entire team suffers. Yeah. And like, but, but also in a way that didn't like, throw all of them under the bus. It's not, it wasn't like Charles Barkley is bad at basketball. It's like no one can live up to Michael Jordan if he's gone. And the yeah, way they a, do that is by literally stealing their basketball powers, which is just awesome. Very tongue in cheek move. And I think surprisingly meta for a time when I think that type of humor was not very rare to find, but yeah, no. And then I think after watching Space Jam 2, it's, it, it was very apparent that, Space Jam did have something special with it, like whether it be the time or the storyline or, um, or the directors or, or whatever, like it, it was a very, I think it's a very special moment. Um, 
I think in film history. I, straight up, yeah. yeah honestly, I think yeah. um I think I said it during our Space Jam 2 episode, but like you can't just make Space Jam because you want to make Space Jam. You have yeah. to have a story to tell. And I felt like Space Jam 2 I somewhere there were writers that appreciated that you can't just do the same thing again. And they didn't, but they didn't have a story they wanted to tell. Like they made a story so they could make Space Jam 2. They didn't have a story and turn it into Space Jam. Yeah. Like I, I liked how Space Jam 1 never took itself too seriously. Like I think it had heart, but it was never like like I, I think Space Jam 2 with the whole like the father's trying to reconnect with his son and this is like some cruel like it was very corny and cliche. Um, Space Jam 1 wasn't trying to shove in some extremely emotional arc for Michael Jordan. He was just, he was mostly, he was just there to play basketball for the most part. And he had like this, this very small subplot of, uh, there was like, a, not okay, not even a subplot. There was elements of him being there for his family and him being a family man. But it was never, that wasn't his, he was more of a, plot instigator or tool rather than like needing his own character arc or whatever which i think was better although i think like he did get i don't think he got like a super necessarily well fleshed out character arc or at least not one that i can put into words but the emotional beats in the first space jam hit so hard for me oh yeah well i'd say his arc was just mostly like he relearned why he loved basketball yeah which I think is like very fitting for the movie. And it's not like this huge emotional moment, even though it is an emotional movie at times. Like it's not like Michael Jordan's like reconnecting with his like childhood. And yeah, it's just, he likes basketball again. He He learns to like basketball again. And like, because that movie actually had a story to tell about basketball, the moral of the story being maybe I do like basketball, works really well as emotional payoff. Like, yeah. not every movie has to be about my dad. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't need a kid's movie commenting on my relationship with my father every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get that. Um, yeah, anyways, what's your movie? So my live-action movie is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? The other insane live action animation crossover from 1988. So this is eight years earlier, but I think without Who Framed Roger Rabbit, we wouldn't have Space Jam. And I don't know who the hell took a chance on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but my God, once again, we will never get this movie ever again. Mommy's going to the beauty parlor, darling. But I'm leaving you with your favorite friend, Roger. He's going to take very, very good care of you. Because if he doesn't, he's going back to the science lab. Cut, 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 cut! What the hell was wrong with that take? Nothing with you, baby Herman. You were great. You were perfect. You were better than perfect. Just Roger. He keeps blowing his lines. Roger. What's this? A tweeting bird. Tweeting bird. Roger, read the script. Look what it says. It says rabbit gets clunked. Rabbit sees stars. Who's not birds? Who framed Roger Rabbit? It, it takes place in a Los Angeles where um, 
where like live action human beings live alongside tunes, which are cartoons like from the golden era of cartoons, like Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny, Roger Rabbit, the titular Roger Rabbit. It's very much the same idea of the world as this year's Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. Yeah, the the idea is that like, you know, live action actors and animated actors are all actors and like they just and like cartoons are just filmed with animated actors instead. So, um, you know, but the actual like cartoons that we have in our world are canonical in that in who framed Roger Rabbit. So like if we have a Mickey Mouse cartoon where Mickey Mouse does something very, you know, does something that he can only do because he's an animated mouse that like a real actor probably would (laughs) die from or something that that's something that can happen in who framed Roger Rabbit. So a really major element of who framed Roger Rabbit is that tunes are very hard to kill. Like straight up. That's an actual thing that happens in the movie because um, who framed Roger Rabbit is a murder mystery involving like very early on a studio head gets murdered. No, not that studio head. It's Straight the up. guy who runs Acme. Like, you know, <laughs> the, the one that, Coyote, that Coyote is always buying stuff from the guy yeah. who runs Acme gets murdered. And like the, per- and they, and it's framed on Roger Rabbit. So like the movie is about Bob Hoskins having to uh, figure out who framed Roger Rabbit because he's pretty sure Roger Rabbit didn't kill the head of Acme. And um, first off, it's a really good noir movie. And and what I really like about this movie is by taking place in a world that has cartoon characters alongside human beings, every human being is a little more cartoony and every cartoon character is at least a little, is a little bit more human. Like mm-hmm. uh, the cartoon characters, like a big part of it is that they're really hard to kill, which really like, which kind of makes the stakes that much higher for the humans all the time. Because like Roger Rabbit, I keep saying Roger Robert, Roger <laughs> Rabbit so he's a character who's in hyper violent cartoons, not hyper violent like adult, but like there's a big commentary on this in this movie about how overly violent old Bugs Bunny ty- style stuff actually was. I think the first scene of this movie is a short cartoon featuring Roger Rabbit and Baby Huey, uh, where Baby Huey gets like, in the, he's just walking around the kitchen and Roger Rabbit keeps like, running into things and almost getting impaled with knives or like firing rockets all over the place, or he's on fire running through the, through the kitchen. And like, it's supposed to make you laugh. And like, it's exactly what old cartoons were, but it's dialed up to 11 sort of Mm -hmm. to like, when it's in this world where Bob Hoskins, who's a real person in this world, would get killed by anything happening in that kitchen. It makes you sort of think about it. Like it it makes you think about the violence in those cartoons in a different, in a way that you normally wouldn't without being like, um, it's, it's a commentary on violence that doesn't necessarily like, uh, condemn every cartoon that came before. It's like, 
why you're taking entertainment value from this. Consider what you're actually taking entertainment value from and what the actual stakes would be. <laughs> and so I think it's like, it's a, yeah. it's really cool in how it can use and how it uses the, the medium of animation to comment on animation and also to like celebrate, celebrate and comment on like other stuff at the time because it's set in Los Angeles at an undisclosed mm. time, but probably around the golden age of Hollywood. So like it's commenting on those old noir movies and it's, it like dials up all the noir tropes to 11 too. And yeah. the villain's master plan is to build a freeway that's going to go right through Toontown in, in Los Angeles. And like, <laughs> I don't know when the freeway actually came yeah. into Los Angeles, but I'm going to assume it was probably around that time. And people are like, the freeway? No, what is that? And I remember hearing that. And I'm like, oh, that's it? That's his plan? It's it's awesome. Oh, I guess it is set in 1947. Uh, check this movie, it's yeah. really, really good. It is the only movie, I'm yeah. pretty sure, to feature both Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny in a single in the same scene, as well as oh, having wow. like... It has a dueling pianos scene with Daffy Duck versus Donald Duck and all of the original voice actors for these people as long as they were still alive. Wow, that's um, crazy. It's it's probably know. the most ambitious. It's one of the most ambitious animated movies ever made and yeah. we will never get another movie like this. Also directed by Robert Zemeckis, who I guess was just like home run after home run in the 1980s. Yeah, he's... It's, it's actually kind of hard to believe he's done so many so much stuff like that, and he's like, I, don't, I feel like he's not like that well known too. Like you, you, you don't when to, people talk about the greats, at least like casually, I never hear his name pop up. But he's done I mean, some amazing movies. Yeah, although like people definitely people definitely do know him. Like maybe oh, yeah. not in, not at the same level as like as like Steven Spielberg, but Robert Zemeckis is the guy behind Back to the Future. Like. He's not, he's not nothing. Oh yeah. No, of course not. So, uh, before we move on, we actually have a call in from a very special guest. Uh, this is actually our first ever guest on the main show. Pierre, uh, Pierre, why don't you check this out? Whoa. Hey Jeff. Hey Pierre. Thanks so much for having me on again. Uh, I love that you guys are doing this episode. I think that animated films can definitely be a little bit disrespected, uh, especially on certain podcasts. And it's really great that you guys are giving it the the time and the recognition that it deserves, because uh, where would we all be without animated films? In terms of what my favorite sci-fi animated movie is, I'm going to go with Shane Acker's Nine. It's about some ragdoll-looking robots who come alive after all of the humans have died, and they're trying to figure out what happened and like why why humanity had a downfall and and yeah it's a bit of a mystery but it's also a really cool science fiction movie that didn't really get a lot of love when it came out the short film did but the feature didn't quite hit i don't think as as much as people thought it would there are some really great voice performances in it as well elijah wood and christopher plummer stand out for me in particular and the animation is really beautiful. It's incredibly detailed. It's really immersive. It just feels really tangible. And yeah, it's it's incredible what Acker did for the movie. It's definitely one that I recommend people check out if you haven't already. But that's it from me. So thank you guys again for having me on. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you to Rachel Ho 
co-host of ContraZoom Pod, for coming on our podcast. Thank you, Rachel. So as Rachel said there, we got sci-fi next. Pierre, yes. what's your favorite sci-fi movie? I mean, I feel like mine's pretty... I mean, well, I feel like any Pixar movie is like almost cheating, but I'm going to have to pick Wally for mine. Seven hundred years into the future, mankind will leave our planet, leaving Earth's cleanup in the hands of one incredible machine. His name is Wally. After all these years, he's developed one little glitch. Wow. A personality. He's extremely curious. <laughs> And just a little bit lonely. I, th- I think Wally's really impressive in that it takes a very heavy concept of the Earth having basically died, and uh, they turn it into some kind of beautiful romance movie between robots, um, slash, like, kind of saving the Earth. And uh, yeah, I, I, okay, I don't want to talk about it too much because I know you want to talk about it again later. Let's talk about it now. Talk about, but yeah, I, I, I think it's, and I, I think it's really great in that it, it doesn't shy away from the themes, even though, again, it was marketed a lot more towards kids, obviously. But it's, it's, if you like, it's, it's more like the heaviness is all there, but it's like Wally's choosing to ignore it, which I think is also plays into the themes a lot of, of like Wally being just a extremely positive robot that's trying to see the beauty of, you know, whatever's left. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think his, that's like what we see it through the movie is that that positivity really starts to affect everyone that he meets. Right. Just that innocent, naive hope for the future uh, that I think humanity, at least in the movie and maybe now desperately like needed. Yeah, and it's like beautifully like I think it's it's a really beautiful movie to look at. I think some of the like in terms of like the sci-fi stuff, like I think a lot of the concepts are really interesting. Like I I think like the whole like everyone becomes really you know obese and lazy in the future just makes a lot of sense, and it it feels very rude. It's not I mean it's played off for jokes, but it's also like a very deep look at you know maybe towards what like what we're headed, and uh, and I love the. I love how they even have like some very political like elements thrown in there too. It's just, it's so, so much heavy stuff for, a, you know, again, a, a movie marketed towards kids. Like it's a Pixar movie, um, but it works so well just because of that central idea of Wally basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, I think it's a, a really great movie and I hope they never make a sequel for it. Is all I can say. I don't need a Wally too, please. Yeah. I really love about that movie, like, I love how much that movie makes me think. I just don't think it nails, I, I don't think, I think it's got really good sci-fi commentary. I just think that a lot of it comes across really boomerish and, like, it doesn't nail it entirely. I don't personally care for everyone becoming fat because I think, I think in the case of the movie, the movie doesn't make a strong case for that. Like everyone becomes obese in that in in Wally, and the way that it's presented, it's like everyone is so obese they can't walk. Except that later on they say, "Oh, they have bone loss." 
like that doesn't make any sense. Why is oh, it? Bo- why is it bone loss? Mm. And if it's bone loss, then why is it obesity? It's like both of those things. Either of those things could be, but together they sort of fumble the metaphor for both sides. Which I think I don't know. For me, I think that like in that spe- in the case of that very specific metaphor, uh, if everyone was like constantly sitting and never had to get up or exercise for any reason their muscles would atrophy and they would become impossibly skinny. So like, I don't, I don't know. I interpret that particular set of circumstances differently, but like the movie isn't about whether they become fat or whether they get bone loss. The movie is about like all of these, it introduces all of these different concepts and like whether it nails the exact reality of what would happen is sort of secondary to how much, like what that movie makes you think about. And I think that in that respect, Wally is really good about giving me questions and not really caring whether or not it hits the right answers. It's, it's not, it's not there to answer my questions. It's like, Hey, this is a possible future. Is it actually like a fully possible future? It doesn't matter. Think about where we are now and what steps we're taking and what steps we're taking in the world right now that could lead us here and think about whether or not you want to be here. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, yeah, I guess it's more like, cause I, I guess the whole point of sci-fi, it's like sci-fi is supposed to be accurate. So yeah, I, I get the whole point about the bone, dens- bone density thing, but I see it as more of just like, I don't really need to, like, I don't really care about the science. I think it's, it's still yeah. like realistic, realistic, even though their explanation doesn't really make any sense. I mean, for me, it's more the questions are interesting than whether or not I even care about the answers is more yeah. what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, so but yeah, yeah that is a great pick for sci-fi. And it means that I have to talk a little bit less about one of my picks later. <laughs> what is your sci-fi pick? My pick for sci-fi is the influential movie from, I think, 1982? 1988. The 1988 anime, Akira. It was a dream that I saw. You mustn't let that boy go. The city will crumble. So many people, so many will die. We get to meet Akira again. Akira? When will it happen? Which is a, it's a Japanese movie um, that all takes place in Neo Tokyo over the course of a couple of days. And in it, there's, there's two friends, Kaneda and Tetsuo, who uh, they're, they're bros that hang out in their motorcycle gang, but Tetsuo doesn't, he, he doesn't feel valued in the group and he eventually gets like sort of kidnapped and mm-hmm. discovers like this entire government plot to create essentially psychic baby war weapons, like <laughs> basically creating mutants to use as biological weapons. And I've seen this movie at least twice. I think I've seen this movie three times and I still don't fully understand it. So like it is my, it, it's not my favorite with caveats. It's just my favorite. And I know I need to go back lots of times to just fully even have an idea of what's going on in this movie because Mm. like the base events are fairly straightforward kid gets kidnapped kid like discovers government plot 
decides to use that against the government, finds a way to do that, and, like, Neo-Tokyo ends up being destroyed. But, like, this movie is so dense with symbolism and, like, it's so steeped in Japanese post-war history that, like, Mm. I... I don't think I will ever fully understand it because this is a reality that as much as this is like technically a sci-fi, it's steeped in a reality that people actually lived. And like, I will never have lived that reality. The reality yeah. of be of growing up in post-war Japan. I don't know. The movie starts with a nuclear explosion and it is hard for me to see that as anything other than like <laughs> extremely steeped in history when it's a movie coming from Japan written by people who grew up in the wake of World War II. Yeah. I think it's um, fair to say there's some there's some relation there. Yeah. And I mean, even beyond that, like so first off, it is an amazing story. I think it's definitely worth going to many times. I personally plan to watch it several more times and i think i i heard that bandai namco is readapting the uh the original manga as a tv show which would be really oh. cool so i i plan to check that out but beyond that too this movie is really really influential on the entire genre of cyberpunk mm-hmm. the from from the aesthetics to the soundtrack to like cyberpunk fashion and like vehicle design mm-hmm. and like the fact that cyberpunk, especially in the West, stole so heavily from Japanese imagery at the time, or just from Japanese, like, culture, or even just, like, a Western interpretation of Japanese culture, is actually a lot down to Akira. Like, so many people have stolen from this movie uh, just because of how, just how cool it looks, and mm-hmm. how cool it sounds. And how cool the story is. And like, you know, even the first time I watched it, I was like, man, I don't fully understand this, but goddamn, was that cool. (laughs) And like, it's a really cool movie. That's probably the coolest part of it, is it's cool. Yeah. I'm actually probably going to go and listen to other podcasts about Akira because I want to know what more people think because I really like this movie. And like I said, I just don't understand it enough where I feel like I could say very much meaningful other than it's awesome and that's why it's my number one pick very compelling case i've I've heard a lot about that movie too i know i know like i've heard the visuals in that movie are amazing and yeah i know it's in, it's in, i've i've heard about it inspiring like a lot of artists too and stuff so yeah i really want to check that out so moving on i have one more anime as well we're going to talk now about our favorite horror movie I'm going to go with Perfect Blue. Mima was a pop star. This is Mima's last performance with Cham. Who desired to become an actress. I really hope that I can entertain you just the same as an actress. But sometimes, aspirations can be deadly. I'm always watching Mima's room. In the world of make-believe. This is when Mima proves herself. The price of fame. Don't worry, Mima, it'll be all right. May not be worth the cost of identity. <laughs> Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Innocence. Which is another influential anime, this time from, ni- from the 90s, I think 97. Uh, this is directed by Satoshi Kone, who is unfortunately no longer with us, but I think 
every movie of his that I've seen has been like five, has been like 10 out of 10. And mm. Perfect Blue is no exception. Perfect Blue is about a Japanese idol. So like a pop, pop singer, basically, who is graduating from her idol group and moving on into acting. And it sort of follows her. It sort of follows her in her journey as she does that very, as she does her very first acting role, which is like a bit part in basically law and order. Like she's in one episode of this crime show and she's a main character in the episode, but she's not a main character in the series. It's like, you know, it's like how law and order SVU might have Dax Shepard in it for one episode or something. He's not a real, like he's not a character that's going to come up a lot but he's the main character of that episode. And that's what's happening here. Um, so it sort of follows her in that. But as that's happening, she was the most popular member of her idol group. So she had a lot of fans and one of her fans is clearly not very happy. And as she's moving into a new industry, she starts following this blog where someone is clearly impersonating her. Like initially, not even maliciously, just like, she's like she'll read this blog where someone where someone is saying in her voice like i went to shibuya today and i bought a bunch of new clothes and she clearly didn't do that but she's like oh this is nice someone is like keeping up with my fans i guess keep keeping fans off my back that's nice i guess and like as that goes on the lines sort of sort of start to blur between this imagined life that this stalker or that this person potentially stalker is like dreaming up for her and her actual life and her life in the show. Like she starts having trouble discerning between which of these three realities is real. And the movie portrays that really well through the animation because by the end, when the movie sort of reveals what's going on, there's it's one of those movies where there's still enough plausible deniability where it's totally possible that like, we actually just know nothing that happened in this movie at that point. Mm-hmm. It's one of those where there's like three different realities, none of which is every scene could be inside any of those three realities. And by the end, like you can interpret this movie so many different ways. Satoshi Kone would later do another movie called Paprika, which is about people that go into other people's dreams. It's got a similar base concept to something like Inception, but it's not anything close to Inception at all beyond that basic concept but that movie also involves like by the end people's dreams are coming into reality real people are going into people's dreams and it's just not really and it's not really clear where the line is between those two anymore perfect blue does that and it's really horrifying there's some very upsetting scenes in this and the way that they play out it's like unclear whether they happened or not and either way, it's really, really upsetting. Mm. Perfect blue. Yeah. That's cool. I should check that out too. I'm, I'm getting so many cool new movies. Well, I mean, I've known a lot about these some of these movies, but I haven't bothered to check them out. If you are listening to this, I have a link to a list <laughs> with all of the movies in the show notes. And if you're Pierre, I have sent Perfect. you a link with a list to all the movies in the show notes. <laughs> I'm our biggest fan. Heck yeah, you are. <laughs> uh, for my horror movie, I'd probably say it was between two for me. One we talked about relatively recently, Coraline. But I'm going to be honest, that movie freaked me out too much. And I don't want to <laughs> talk about it. 
Uh, even though it's, I think it's an amazing movie. I just that's horror... a really strong recommendation, actually. Yeah, it's like horror movies in stop motion. Just yeah, they they kind of mess with me. I want to briefly say Coraline would have been my runner up for me. It was between Perfect Blue and Coraline. For sure. So yeah. Strong recommendation, Coraline. Yeah, what no, was definitely. Your pick? I think it's probably the better movie here. I want to talk about uh, Monster House, though. Every town has a legend. There's something going on in that house. Every street has a story. I'll go ding-dong ditch the house and you'll see. No ghosts! Chatter, stop, please! Chatter, I'm serious. Every house... Chatter, come back! ...has a secret. This movie like really sticks in my head for some reason. I don't know why. It's just, I think it's technically like the first horror movie I ever watched because it, you know, obviously it's, um, I think it was much more, when I saw it, it was much more advertised as a, a fun kids movie, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's a lot more disturbing than you would think going into it. Um, like it has a lot of charm. It's basically like the very stereotypical person notices the house across the street is very suspicious right which i feel like we've seen a lot before except this is animated so like it has a lot of the same charm of of those types of movies but i feel like the animation gives it a little more of a kind of a fun summary like feeling um and yeah i i think once you know once they get into the house obviously and the reveal of what the house was going on in the house i think that's when it really takes um, because before before we really understand what the house is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to worry about spoilers. This is like a 17-year-old movie or whatever. But once we realize the house is like actually an entity in of itself, and it's like the spirit of this guy's late wife, it becomes a lot more interesting. And I, it, you start to realize why this movie specifically was animated. Um, because I think a lot of the things the house ends up doing... you you could not portray in live action and it come off very believable, if that makes sense. Not that mm-hmm. it's, you know, believable as an animated, you know, but yeah, it's, it's a surprisingly haunting movie. Um, but I think it's, I still think it's a lot of fun too. The characters are relatively memorable. And I think it's a very unique, like it's a, it's surprisingly very unique in terms of being a horror movie, right? For some reason, like stop, I think stop motion and horror work very well because I think just naturally stop motion feels kind of off-putting when you look Mm -hmm. at it. And I think that's what makes Coraline so great is it really takes that and pushes it to great effect. Whereas this, I actually think it was animated much more, much more cutesy. It was, it has that kind of weird tinge of like cheap animation at the time. Uh, The art design in that, in this movie really evokes that same feeling as something like it or stranger things mm-hmm. where like it, it hits especially hard for people that grew up in the suburbs because it just like there's something about i don't know maybe it's just like the the portrayal of suburbs in movies like even in halloween and stuff there's just like a specific tinge, a specific like setting of how the suburbs are set up um, and just like a specific vibe, I guess, that mm-hmm. is really, um, that's really specific to the portrayal of American suburbs 
And I don't know if that's actually accurate as, as someone who grew up in like the suburbs and felt like that was what being there, like, that's what my, that's what my memory of the suburbs is like. I don't think it's actually that close, but like, there's just something about that, that like really evokes a specific feeling for. feels very nostalgic. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah. But yeah, is it the best movie ever? Probably. It's very, it's a very corny, cheesy movie. Um, but I think it works well. And it's, it's also uh, Academy uh, Award nominated. Oh yeah, there you go. And it's written by uh, Dan Harmon. I think it's technically mm-hmm. the first thing I've seen from him. Yeah, we actually watched this as uh, when we were doing the Movie Maniacs in um, Movie Maniacs Club in UBCO. After we had started this show, we actually watched this and I remember the reception was mixed when we watched it, but I really, really liked this movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, produced I, by Robert Zemeckis. Oh, there you go. We're on a Zemeckis streak. So, Pierre, moving on to action movies. I'm going to have you start this one again. What's your favorite action movie? My favorite action movie and potentially, I think, my favorite movie of all time is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man. But there is another universe. It looks and sounds like yours... But it's not. My name's Miles Morales. I feel like we've talked about this movie before, right? We have, but we've never done like a full episode. Yeah. um, It comes up a lot. Yeah. It's definitely like, I never thought I would, I would have, to be honest, I never thought an animated movie would be like my favorite, one of my favorite, if not my favorite movie ever, but. This movie, it's so weird. I feel like it came out of nowhere. Like, I remember seeing after the Spider-Man Marvel deal that Sony was working to create their own Marvel animated movie, which I thought was interesting. But I never thought that going into this movie that how much I would love it and how much it would, I think, in my opinion, outdo so many of the other Spider-Man movies in terms of actually getting to the root of what Spider-Man is all about. And I think this movie does that so well, while also like, it just, it does so much. Like it introduces Miles Morales to like the general, I'd say like the bigger populace as a character. It's a multiverse. It was like one of the first multiverse movies of this like era of multiverse movies that we have now. Mm -hmm. It's animated beautifully. Like, I think it's, the first animated movie of that scale that I've seen animated so uniquely, if that makes sense. It's voice cast is amazing. The story itself and the writing is very heartfelt despite how grand it is. And it does so many, it does such service to Spider-Man as a, as not, it's not like it makes it more than a character. That movie really makes it a, an idea. Spider-Man is more of an idea where like anyone can be a hero, I guess. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that movie really takes that to another level. Yeah, it's it's just, it's great. I can't, the only flaw I can think of is like, on, if you're rewatching it, like as many times as I have, it's kind of slow at the start because of how backloaded the end of the movie is. Like there's so, the second and third act is like way more action packed and there's so much more stuff going on. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like when I first watched it, I wouldn't say like the first act was bad at all or boring at all. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's just part of, you know, the way it is. Yeah, it's it's a flawless movie, in my opinion. Into the Spider-Verse is one of those movies where 
I immediately like other movies that remind me of this movie for that reason. Like in recently the Marvel TV show, Miss Marvel came out and I, it's like the first Marvel TV show that I've really, really liked. And the reason was because it was comic booky in the ways that Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse was comic booky with the exception that Miss Marvel is obviously live action. And I think that animation lends itself more naturally to making comic book movies, though not necessarily, not necessarily exclusively, but yeah, just, I think it's kind of cool that the, there's like two movies that I can think of where I like other movies because they remind me of those movies and they're both (laughs) Spider-Man. I I liked Shazam a lot because it reminded me of the first Spider-Man. I liked Ms. (laughs) Marvel because it reminded me of Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. Fantastic movie. Definitely a great pick. For sure, yeah, and like I, the a- animation wise, like it, you couldn't have done it any other way. I think that's what makes it so unique is that it's it's really putting you into the into a comic book. Like that art style really brings the comic book to life, um, and it doesn't like fight it or in any way. It really embraces that. Like I loved like the little every time, like you would have a sound, like even a small sound effect, or like someone would bump into someone else, you'd see like the sounds coming out and stuff it's just the movie feels so alive and you can tell there's so much heart poured into every single detail of that movie mm-hmm. which I, I mean it had like i think they had like three directors if i'm not mistaken or something um it? it was it was a lot yeah maybe maybe two i think it might have been three it was yeah three directors yeah which is crazy and of course it's it's written by phil lord and well i don't know who rodney rothman is but Phil Lord and Chris was, Miller are a good combo. It was definitely like, it was pushed as a Lord Miller production, but I'm just seeing now that the screenplay actually did not involve Christopher Miller. Yeah, he well, I, producer, but. I don't know if this is like just me hoping, because like they're, they're the name recognized ones here mostly, but this feels like when you have three directors, I feel like the directors were much more of a, a unit to get the movie done, if that makes sense. Like they were supervising a lot of the smaller details, but it was like mostly Phil Lord's vision. I think Mm -hmm. that's my interpretation of that because I think it's in any other case, I think having three directors in a movie would cause a lot of um, like a lot of problems unless they were put in that role and they had a central vision to come off of, which and I mm-hmm. think was Phil Lord, but if, if I'm mistaken, I'm really sorry. I think in any case, these directors are also really amazing. I also would like to point out, uh, and this means something because we've talked about him shockingly often on this podcast, probably my favorite Jake Johnson performance. Oh yeah. He, it's he, so, I, I mean, the entire voice cast is, it's actually an insanely stacked voice cast. You got mm-hmm. Leah Liev Schreiber as Kingpin, who was great. Nicholas Cage as Spider-Man Noir <laughs> was really That's really funny. Awesome! I'm I really want to see more Spider-Man Noir mm. with Nick Cage. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't seen like a spinoff for some of these characters. I mean, I'm kind of I mean, thankful, but there is a spinoff currently in development. I don't think it's a noir spinoff, but like if they're doing one spinoff, if animated Spider-Man ends up working as well as a franchise as Sony wants it to. I think there's potential for every single one of these characters to spin off. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, we'll see after 
maybe they're saving it for the next two movies to see like if there's a better character to spin off of. I was going sorry, I was going it's just John Mulaney. I think this is like the only John Mulaney role where I don't like dislike him. Like I think he he has he has a very big like character in his a lot of character in his voice and I think this movie balances it out really well. Like he doesn't have a huge role in it. Brian Tyree Henry, Marsha Maharshala Ali, Haley Steinfeld. But yeah, I think Jake, uh, to to me this felt more like this w- felt like Jake Johnson's movie. In my, I feel like he, even though it wasn't like his movie, um, character arc wise, this he was a very he was a it was a very because I feel like with Miles Morales, well, he's a different character. We've seen this idea of Peter Parker, like like Peter or Spider Man being a kid growing up going to high mm-hmm. school and i love that right but this i thought his look at peter parker as like this really old depressed guy that because I, I love how spider-man a thing with him is he always loses and then we are kind of seeing the effects of what always losing in his normal life does to someone so i thought he that was just a really cool look at that side of the character too and the way the chemistry between jake johnson and the actor for miles morales shameek moore was like it was really, really good. I think they played off each other amazingly well. Yeah, on, on the always losing thing, Jake Johnson is basically playing a character who, one, always loses, and his best years are behind him. Yeah. Like, his best years, where he always lost, are still are behind him. Like, it's only been downhill for years. Yeah, yeah. And I think it came at a really interesting... I feel bad... Well, I don't, I don't feel bad, but I think it's interesting how it came the same year as Black Panther, I feel like this was a much more genuine look at, at like having, I thought it was a great way of having someone of a different race be, or a, a more like take, okay, how do I say this? <laughs> because you have a, a stereotypically, you know, white superhero and his mantle is being taken up by someone, a person of color. And I thought, mm-hmm. I thought that was, it was much better done in that movie because I feel like I, I just felt a lot more of, Miles Morales being his own character and pushing that up, if that makes sense. I think um, Black Panther, while I loved how it had like, you know, a much more like uh, an all black cast or mostly black cast. I think some of the ideas in Wakanda felt kind of unrelatable to like the general audience of, you know, of what people usually see. Cause it's like the, the whole stuff with the, uh, fighting over being king and stuff felt very weird. Whereas this, this felt more grounded and more relatable, I think, to people of color. I think it's really, really hard, especially in superhero movies, to have anyone other than the original person who, like, took on some mantle take that up. Like, it's really hard to give me a story where someone who's not Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man. Or where someone who's not Thor becomes Thor for some reason, mm-hmm. like, and, and I mean that's that's exactly like me just say, me just right there saying for some reason is exactly it. It's like Jane Foster exists because she's a supporting Thor character. It's really hard to convince me that she should be her own char- character and moreover her own superhero, and more than that even that she should deserve to be literally Thor as opposed Mm -hmm. to the other character being that. And I think that Miles Morales is one of the cases where is one of the strongest cases for that. Like 
I never feel like Miles Morales lives in Peter Parker's shadow. And even, yeah. even then, I say that even though the first part of this movie is literally him being inspired by Peter Parker to take up the mantle of Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. Or like yeah, to he's... become a superhero. <clears throat> he was always his own thing. And I think, I mean, obviously, I think it's a great moment for seeing a, a person of color being a superhero. But then also, like, it was never... I mean, I think the movie very indirectly addresses it in terms of, like, he doesn't feel like he can live up to the Peter Parker mantle. I think especially when you look at, you know, Peter Parker in that universe was was different. He was, like, he had blonde hair and blue eyes. He was much more, like, like Captain America, stereotypically American yeah. or white American. So there's, like, I think subtle references to it, but I love how it's not, like, an overt thing. Mm -hmm. He's He is, he just happens to be black hispanic um and it's a very important part to his character kind of like in miss marvel but it, i don't think it ever over overshadows like him as a character and it's his story yeah. still yeah um and i thought that was very well done mm -hmm. honest like fantastic choice that's Thank one you. that i don't know why it uh, well actually i know exactly why it's not on my list because the only place that I, well, the place I would have put it would have been best action movie. But there's a running theme here, which is we're picking our favorite movies of all time for our action movie. And I'm gonna go with Redline. which is another movie that you can just feel the love in this movie in every single frame. I know I talk about Redline a lot. I don't think I've talked about Redline on this podcast, though. Have I? Do you know what Redline is? Have I talked about it? Um, no, I don't think so. Redline is a racing anime. It came out in 2009 after roughly, again, seven years of work. Jeez. And it's basically, if you've ever seen the old series Wacky Races... It's that. Like, yeah. the whole movie is about one race that happens on a planet called Robo World with, I think, nine different racers from different planets. It might be 12 racers from different planets. And all of them have, like, none of them have, like, a lot of screen time, except for the main character. Not There's not that many that have that much more screen time. But, like, all of them are so fully fleshed out they're so well designed. You can tell everything you need to about them right away. And then, and like, it's just all of these excellent, excellent characters driving cars and like trying to kill each other. And yeah. it's awesome. It's a very simple story. And the art direction, the like so incredibly tight character writing and just the visuals of it make it impossible to look away from. And also just like these characters, there's a character whose name is Gory Ryder. He's a corrupt gorilla space cop. And uh, his main character feature isn't even that he's a gorilla. It's that he's a corrupt cop who has, who's cheating on his wife publicly. Like they literally have an interviewer just ask him, hey, why are you cheating on your wife? And he kisses his mistress right there. And it's like, oh, cool. 
corrupt evil cop right here. Nice. And like, you don't need more than that before you know everything you need to know about Gory Ryder. And he's a dick. And every time we see him, he's an asshole. And he's, and like, we know everything about him already. And when it turns out that his, that his car is a tank that inside, uh, has another smaller tank. It's like, yeah, that sounds about right for Gory Ryder. What a dick. (laughs) Anyway, the thing about this movie, part of what makes it so beautiful to look at is, uh, if you pull up like the visuals of what this movie looks like, it is moving at just an insane number of frames per second. And every single one of those frames is hand painted. I believe it's 7,000 frames, uh, each of which is, like I said, hand painted. Oh, wow. Um, its development took seven years and used 100,000 handmade drawings. Oh, jeez. And like, mm-hmm. with this movie, again, it's so frenetic. There's so much happening on screen all the time. Like, But it's really well directed. It's really mm-hmm. well directed so that like every time you're watching the screen, you know where to look. But if you've already seen the movie and you want to like just look a little bit off to the side, you're always rewarded for that because there's something else happening in the scene. Yeah. Like, it's a movie that like even the side side characters, like the characters who are only there for one scene uh, express so much through the way they're drawn, the character design and the like one or two small lines they have. Even mm-hmm. today, like I still regularly think about these three tiny characters, like literally tiny. They're just actually small. They hassle the main character, sweet JP, for money as soon as he gets to the planet that they're supposed to be racing on. And they're just, they're only in the scene for like a minute or so. And like, they're still so memorable just because of how much they stick out through their art direction and how much they say about the world in their two or three lines where they're hassling this guy for money. Like (laughs) this movie has so much to say and can do that through art direction in a way I've never seen another movie do. Like yeah, well, I've seen modern I've seen modern art like collage films that wish they could say as much as this movie does. Yeah, well, I think that's like um, I think a big strength of animation potentially is how much with like the liberties you can take with like ab- abstraction and stuff. I feel like there are a lot of ways you can you can build the world a lot more efficiently than live action movies and i think it's like a skill i well in in some ways i think in animated movies i think it's also and live action movies i think it's something that's uh really they they can miss i mean like there's other ways Mm -hmm. to do it right but i think that's one of the greatest strengths of animated movies and that's why um it's it's a great way of telling a story in a different way like you Mm -hmm. like you can and i i think the more efficient a movie is with stuff like that the more it the, the more made like that's like that's what i was talking about with musicals right they're taking it's not just because it's a it's the music isn't just there it's because it really flourishes in this in this form um mm-hmm. of movie and it's the same thing with animation too so yeah mm-hmm. yeah so redline once again i i highly recommend it it is directed by takeshi koike and has probably the best soundtrack i have ever heard by James Shimoji, and it has a dude named Machine Head who is a car, and he drives a car, and he's the champion. And like... Good name. It's, there's, there's so much cool stuff in this movie. I literally just said the name Redline, and I'm like, oh, I gotta watch that again. I'm not gonna watch <laughs> it tonight, 
but I really want to. Mm. So I have one more movie to talk about, and that is for the last genre we picked, which is biopic. Oh, are we skipping romance? Did we? Oh my god, we did. We almost missed it. Yeah, I accidentally missed romance. I have two more movies to talk about, and you have at least one more movie to talk about. Let's talk about mm. romance. I I over I overlooked it on my sheet. Let's talk about romance quick. What's your favorite romance movie, Pierre? Uh mine. I this was kind of close, honestly. This I was kind of between. Wait, let me check. What did I have? Wall. Okay, Wally was one of them until I saw yours, and then I was like. <laughs> I'll choose a different one. Uh, one I really liked also was Your Name. I don't know if you've seen that one. That was my runner-up. Okay, yeah, that was my runner-up too. That's an amazing movie. But I chose, uh, we're going to go stereotypical choice again, Toy Story 4, actually. Everyone, Bonnie made a friend in class. Oh, she's already making friends. No, no, she literally made a new friend. I want you to meet Forky. Uh, hi. Hello. Hi. Ah. <gasps> He's a spork. Yes, yeah, I know. Forky is the. But yeah, I think it really hit a lot of notes in terms of. I don't think it's like the best Toy Story movie for sure because it feels much more personal to Woody. But yeah, it was. I think it was just really beautiful look at. You know, Woody being someone that has kind of ran his through his main purpose of life, mm-hmm. and. He's not really sure what the next step is because I it it's he chose he chose to be there for Andy this whole time and we never really I mean I never really thought about like what else there was for him but obviously like he they referenced the the romance or a potential romance between him and Bo Peep in like adding Toy Story two and three no she wasn't in Toy Story three in Toy Story two and to see it kind of come full circle. And him coming to terms with uh, moving on and finding something else in his life was was actually really touching, I think. And there's some really mm-hmm. beautiful moments in that movie, I think, between him and Bo Peep. Even though it's not like a full-on like romance movie, I think it has a lot of the elements of it. I think everyone thought the idea of another Toy Story was a terrible idea. Um, but I think this one, even though, again, it's not a great Toy Story movie, I still think it's an amazing movie in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wish they called it something different, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I get that. I think it's really interesting that uh, both of our picks for this category, Toy Story 4 and WALL-E, uh, both, both picks are picks, interestingly mm-hmm. enough. But I think it's really interesting that like neither of those is a straightforward romance. Because like, WALL-E is much more so a sci-fi movie than it is a romance. And I would say Toy Story 4 is more obviously a Toy Story movie than it is a romance. I don't know exactly how to call it that, but neither of them Mm -hmm. is like billed as a romance necessarily. But I think that they both are really good choices for a romance movie because I think the romance elements of those two is really strong without being necessarily gushy. Like they're not traditional romance movies, but they do hit the same emotional beats really hard. Yeah, well, I'd say for both movies, the romance was kind of a almost like a plot instigator. Mm-hmm. Like, part of the plot with Woody was that he was kind of on his own adventure with Bo Peep, and he wanted to get back. And Wally was the reason he went to space was because of Eva, or Eve. I don't know how to pronounce her name technically. It's it's, it's 
It's Eve, right? But then he says Eva. It's technically Eve, but he says okay. Eva. Eva. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, but I, I think it they work really well because they're both placed. I would say they're both placed against very depressing situations. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Wally, we obviously talked about, like, like, contrasted with this sci-fi, almost, like, tragedy. Um, but, it's certainly with, intended to be a dystopia. Yeah. <laughs> and then with uh, Toy Story 4, obviously not dystopian, but, like, you, you can really feel the weight of Woody's kind of world crumbling around him where he realizes he doesn't really belong where he is anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's a place where we've seen him for, I guess, technically for like 10, 20 years um, as a place that he belonged. And uh, it's there's a very bittersweet, like, essence to his romance where he's, he loves Bo Peep, but he's also very sad because being with her means he has to move on from his entire life and all his friends and everything. And also in a way, like, kind of, he really reevaluates who he who, who he is, you know, he's like fighting against his main purpose, which is to be played with by children. Um, (laughs) And yeah. They're both movies that end in a really hopeful way. And like with a, on a really hopeful note, and that wouldn't be the case without the romance element. The romance is Mm. important to those movies, but not in the way of a traditional romance movie, maybe, but it's integral to those movies being what they are. Yeah. And I think they're both... Like, I think the problem with, I think, romance, a straight-up just romance, is kind of tough in animation because romance itself is very easy to film. You know, like, it's not like... Like, two people or two animals or objects, like, falling in love. Like, I, I feel like it's not it doesn't require many technical feats. Right. And I guess Toy Story 4, you could still argue that, but like Wally, I guess that's, I feel like that movie you can only have animated for sure. Well, I guess Toy Story 2, because you know, he's, he's a toy. (laughs) Yeah. That makes sense. But um, yeah, I don't think, I feel like in my opinion, you couldn't have just a straight up romance movie in animation, unless you could find a way for the animation to really enhance that part of the story, if that makes sense. I mean, part of the romance. I think you totally can. And I think people have, but I get what you're saying where I don't think it's necessary the same way. Like when you animate an action movie, there's a lot more freedom that the medium of animation gives you that you can use in more obvious ways that you can like use to get bigger effects in your action movie with Mm -hmm. romance. There's that you definitely can use the medium of animation to enhance the romance. But you don't need to as much. Like, yeah. you well, can yeah. do that live action just as well. I shouldn't say it's impossible. I should say it's a lot harder mm-hmm. to visualize romance in an animated way. Like, there's not, yeah. But you explained yeah, it guess, very well, so thank you. I guess what I would say is, like, your name is very good as an animated romance movie. And I think that it does use animation in a way that, like, does benefit the name the the movie but theoretically you could make your name in live action and you could make it effectively as a live action movie oh you for could sure. not effectively yeah. make toy story 4 yeah yeah i agree all right one last category 
Let's go. So the last category we got, like I said earlier before I realized I had skipped one, biopic. Biopic is an interesting one. It's kind of like, like documentary. It's not a genre that is used as often or at least not as like big of a scale as often in animation. But like it, it does happen. There's one that I really wanted to watch for this, but I, I decided against because I already knew what my number one was going to be. There's one I really wanted to watch for this called The Wind Rises, which was mm-hmm. done by Hayao Miyazaki, who, uh, and it's about a plane designer who I believe eventually was involved in World War II, but uh, the story oh, wow. is not, I don't think the story is directly about that. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's like a biopic about this designer or engineer. Which is cool. I think it's cool that, like, Hayao Miyazaki is doing that. And, like, biopics can be used to do some very cool things that, again, like, you can do an animated biopic where a norm- where a, uh, a biopic in live action would be a lot more difficult or at least, like, not give you access to as many cool things. And I think that uh, the movie I picked here, Buñuel in The Labyrinth of the Turtles uses that really well. Buñuel is, or was, a surrealist filmmaker. He was good friends with Salvador Dali. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've only watched one of his films so far, but it's weird. He's a surrealist, so he does, like, very weird stuff in his movies. And, you know, uses... Uh, I'm not even going to say medium. He uses... He, he really fits within the... Um, within the canon of surrealism. I don't know how else to say it. His movie's super freaking weird. And <laughs> um, this movie too, really like, it uses animation to get at surrealism in a way that would be difficult to film. Like it shows us Buñuel's like view of the world almost dreamlike sometimes. And when he's filming things, Okay, let me explain what this movie's about first. Buñuel, being a surrealist filmmaker, he's hired to do a documentary, which is a very weird thing because he's an artist who doesn't capture real life in that way. Like, he captures what he considers to be real life, but he's not capturing it the way a documentarian would. Like, he's not fil- he's not filming things and then letting people see what he has filmed. He's, like, definitely, you know, creating an image and using metaphor and all of these things. But he's hired to do a documentary about a village in like the boonies of Spain. And um, he decides to do it. And because he's not approaching it as a documentarian, he's approaching it as a surrealist. He like knows what he wants to film and what he wants to film, the truth that he wants to film is not the same as the truth that is right in front of his eyes. And so what this movie like can use animation to really show is the ways where he's manipulating his subjects to get what he wants to film versus like what is actually the truth and how those kind of blur together in his vision. Because like when he goes to this Spanish town, a lot of the way he sees it is very dreamlike. Like when he looks around at people, like he sees them all as objects in his painting, in in like the painting that he's making in his mind um, instead of as people, but not so much that they fully disappear into just being 
objects, but more like there's specific pieces he can place where he needs them to, where he needs to. And it kind of paints him as a bit of a monster for like trying to manipulate the truth the way he does. And I think what this movie does really well, what's really cool about the way this movie works out is it actually, this is a real story that happened. It's fictionalized, obviously, but like this is a real documentary he got like really paid to do. And it's a real documentary he really filmed. And so it includes shots from the documentary alongside animated shots of him trying to get that shot and shows, yes, this is what he actually captured. And here's like the actual process of getting it. Like there's a scene where in the, in the documentary where like he has a local, like pull the head off a chicken and he wants it to look really brutal. And the way that he, and the way that it portrays him doing that in the, uh, in the biopic is like, he gets a chicken and he's like, all right, let's pull the head off this chicken. It's like, why are we going to do that? Oh, cause that's how things are down here. That's the real story of this Spanish, Spanish village. People just buy chickens and pull the heads off them here. It's like, yeah. Oh, okay. So he's like, so pull the head off the chicken. And he gets like his friend to try and pull it off, but he can't cause he's never pulled the head off a chicken. And he's like, Hey, you, Dude over there, why don't you come here? We'll pay you five bucks. You pull the head off this chicken. He's like, oh, okay. So he gets this picture of like the real, the, the, the raw Spanish countryside where people just pull the heads off chickens. Mm. It's like, well, it's not actually the truth. It's very manipulated. But yes, that is a real thing that he made happen. And I think like, like through animation, it's able to like, it's able to show that and be like, and I mean, like, I guess you could show the difference between a documentarian, like manipulating the truth and what they show with live action. But the, with this being an animated movie, we're able to see like why he thinks that's the right thing to do. And like when he moves on from that, like this is the way that he sees the world. It's not that, like, yes, he is manipulating the truth and he knows he's manipulating the truth, but he's doing it to get at a deeper truth that is hard for, uh, that's hard to like show in any other way than through animation. And even when you show it through animation, it's like, well, this deeper truth, it may not be the way it's, it's him interpreting something that we're also getting to see, but like, it's not an obvious interpretation. It's just, it's very strange. And he's interpreting it one way where yeah. with animation you can show it in like a way that allows us to interpret it a different way. Yeah. Huh. That like I'm gonna be honest, I didn't even know like animated like biopic was like a thing, but I think this is really cool to see. This was in in 2018, I think. This came out the same year as Frozen 2. Yeah. Uh, it also came out the same year as a movie called Pain and Glory, which way back when, when we talked about Frozen 2, I very briefly like went on a tangent about Pain and Glory because I'd just seen it. Yeah. Um, Buñuel and the Labyrinth of the Turtles was also in contention to be Spain's uh, submission to the Academy for international feature that year. And personally, oh, wow. of the things that, of the animated features that were not nominated that year, that yeah. would have been my favorite. I was, I made, I remember writing a passionate review for the Phoenix news arguing why <laughs> this should have been the winner of animated feature for that year. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I'm looking at the list now. I believe this list has maybe 19 movies on it. 
18 or 19. I put your name on there because it was both of our runners up for best romance. And I think that like, if any movie gets a nod from both of us, even if it's that, even if that's just as a runner up, it deserves to be on that list. So I put that on that list. Yeah. That list will be in the show notes. And yeah. What'd you think? That was, that was long. That was like one of our longest episodes. It was long, but it was was interesting. I, I think there's, I think we have proven that animation is not limited all to its own genre. I think. Exactly. It has it has a lot of potential for different things. As Dakota himself said, animation is a medium, not a genre. Exactly. So yeah, and I think if we wanted to, we could sit here and talk about each category of animated movie for hours because that's the way it works. Like they're all they're all their own thing. I actually wrote uh, in my notes here, I, I would not be the person to do this because I'm not as into that scene as I as like many other people were are. But I think that every single one of these genres, like my example is musical. I think if someone with a much better knowledge of musicals than us, or at least than me, wanted to, they could do an episode going through all of these genres, but musicals only. Yeah, And I think you could do that for every single one of these genres. I think these genres are broad enough that like they do actually lend themselves to doing an entire episode on top 10 while keeping the genre structure intact. Like yeah. top 10 crime movies that are like, you can still have them in genres, comedy, musical, documentary. I can think mm. of, a cro- of a musical crime movie right now. Oh yeah, there's <clears throat> endless subgenres and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this was fun. This is a very different episode for us. I'm glad we got to do it. And I hope that uh, Dakota will take a look at our list and will watch those movies because clearly he's missing out on a lot of animated movies. Evidently. We won. We won, Dakota. We won. We will not be taking any, re- we will not be taking any responses at this time. <laughs> Even though he completely agrees with us. <laughs> There's nothing to win against, but yeah. We won by using his own words against him. Take that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how All this right. wouldn't have existed if he just he just owned. He he never mentioned that he he was he was offending animated fans, animated movie fans. Yeah, I mean, if you invite people to be your enemies, you'll get some enemies. He's asking for it. Well, Pierre, with that. At uh, almost two and a half hours. What's our last word, Pierre? Animation.